there is a supply and, and demand piece of this, which is not just, you know, is there enough housing supply to meet demand, but is there enough supply of of places that are are walkable and pleasant and comfortable and uh you know you, you don't feel like you're gonna get run over crossing the street um and you can let your 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 kids have a little bit of autonomy you know there's not a supply of those places you know there's a serious lack of supply of those those places and so you know as soon as as soon as we you know help one to reemerge or make a new one you know there's just such a demand for it um because it's just not what it's not what even in new construction it's not what people are building yeah you know as as much as as much as we'd like to see to as much as we'd like to be winning the battle against against you know sprawl which is sort of the the battle that that we fight um you know we're still not And welcome to episode number 67 of the Placemaking Podcast. Can't wait to share this next conversation with all of you here today. Now, today on the show, I have a very special guest, Matthew Lambert. Matthew is a partner of DPZ Co-Design. Now, this firm has been a leader in the practice of planning and urban design for well over 30 years. Their philosophy is a platform of new urbanism, which is a movement promoting mixed-use, traditional neighborhood planning, over the segregated use suburban sprawl that we've seen worldwide. Now, as co-founders of Congress of New Urbanism, DPZ's principles have been longtime advocates of urban growth through compact, pedestrian-oriented, transit-friendly communities that continue to shape policy and have recently influenced new sustainability codes. Now, in this episode, we learned about the persistent issues that have perpetuated the suburban sprawl movement we discussed how many of the outdated regulations have led to a car-centric model. And last but not least, we discussed how individuals and professionals in their community can really begin to advocate for developments that are truly equitable and sustainable. There's tons of great information in this episode, and I really hope you enjoy it. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in this industry. There'll be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello, and welcome, everyone. Uh, we have with us here Mark, as hey. always, <laughs> and our special guest, Matt Lambert. Uh, he is the partner at DPZ Co-Design. Uh, they're a multidisciplinary firm focused on urban planning, code writing, and architecture, just to name a few. Uh, so without further ado, thanks for coming on the show, Matt. Yeah, well, thanks thanks for uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it, I, I would also say uh, rebels to some extent, too. So, you know, right. in, in, the, in, the best, in the best punk rock kind, you know, right. which is something that I always sort of check back with, you know. Yeah, that, that was in parentheses, right after architecture. So I got... <laughs> So before we get going and diving really into the meat of it, let's let's hear a little bit more about your background and then kind of transition that to where you're at in your career and a little bit about DPZ. Sure, sure. I mean there's there's a couple other hats that I wear that are that are that are in there um, that I suppose are the now, but I'll just get them since they're on the top of my head. Um, 
one of one of which is uh, on the Congress for Urbanism uh, Board of the Directors. So I'm the the chair elect uh, of that organization. Uh, and then we're we're getting started with this uh, other organization, Place Initiative, focused on uh, climate and equity. Um, you know, and then I uh, also work with my neighborhood business association, and you know, we'll see we'll see what we can get off the ground uh, here in in Portland with uh, with some some local CNU and Place Initiative stuff, sort of you know poking poking the bear here and there. Um, my my background, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Detroit. Uh, originally, well, Metro Detroit, um, which was a totally different world in in the 80s and 90s when I grew up there than it is today. And I, I moved to uh, Miami to go to college at the University of Miami, which it was one of these things where you go and like, you know, you go on college tours. And if you grew up in Detroit with those winters and, and you show up in Miami and say, well, uh, I'm, I'm not can I just not go back? <laughs> like, <laughs> let me just stay here. Well, that, that, then eventually you get tired of of having only one season all the time. Um, but anyways, I lived in in Miami for for 15 years, and I started working at DPZ in college in like 2001 as as an intern back then. And I studied architecture in in college, um, which is interesting from a DPZ standpoint. Pretty much everybody that we have. Uh, Staff-wise, just about comes from architecture, so we don't come at planning from, say, the the typical uh, sort of uh, planning perspective or, or urban design. We come at it from architecture, and then learn all this other stuff. But I I did a a second major in computer science, and so that that kind of connects with this whole deal of of the complexity of of all the built environment and policies and and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, all like coding and engineering and utilities and, and all this sort of stuff, you know, tickles that organizational side of the brain from computer science. Um, so I was in in Miami for 15 years, uh, you know, I tried to do some things locally. Miami is kind of a difficult place uh, and, and then moved out to uh, Portland, Oregon about seven years ago. And I've, I've been working everywhere but Portland, Oregon. <laughs> because it's uh it's very hard to break into any of the work here if you don't have those connections from the local schools uh which is which is a reality plus um andres duani uh really really pissed everybody off here 10 years ago just by telling the truth you know that the everybody was they, they were really proud of their urban growth boundary and he said yeah but all you did was draw a line and built sprawl up to that line you know, was was that really uh, a success? And so that that still makes it hard to get any work here. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's where that's where I am. Uh, where I am, and with with DPZ, we you know we kind of work all over the place, all over the country, um, internationally on projects for uh, for municipalities, for developers, for uh, for counties or, or governments, for institutions. It's really uh, there's a great diversity of of work, which is what's uh, fulfilling and, and really allows you to sort of grow that toolbox and connect the the dots with uh, with how you can think outside of the box. Wow, man! Growing up in Detroit, I could imagine that there was a lot of you know looking at other places and watching the prosperity and uh, in in contrast to, to the decline that you, you saw and experienced there, but. 
I, I'm sure you've got fond memories of, of growing up there and, and, and it informed your childhood, but tell us a little bit about like what it meant to you to be able to, to be an architect and get into the planning side, um, growing up in that environment. Well, you know, like, I, th- I think I didn't have any clue, <laughs> you know, growing up, you know, like, what do you, what do you really know when, you know, uh, about the the big world at, at, at that age? And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know so much about it, you know, just sort of experiences that you can look back at saying, well, what was, what was the experience going to the tiger games or, or, or going to fireworks on, on the waterfront? Um, or when we used to go to say, punk rock shows in St. Andrew's Hall and in, in downtown, um, which if you if you saw uh, 8 Mile, there was um, some scenes at the shelter where they were in, in inside this venue that's in the basement of, of St. Andrew's Hall. And so, you know, spent, spent a, you know, a good amount of time um, around all that. But, you know, that was that was normal. Right. I, I, I wouldn't say that I spent much time in many other cities, maybe Chicago here and there because it was it was around and then some small towns in Michigan um and you know architecture th- there's there's another thing that I didn't know what I was getting into right um actually it's funny where uh you know I'm thinking with a seven-year-old you know what is it that that she's gonna feel connected to and when and and how because like I can't say that I really knew uh, you know, coming out of out of high school, except that everybody was like, "Well, you should be an architect." You know, yeah. you said, "Okay, okay, well, I'll, I'll give that a try." But what was interesting was was visiting colleges and uh, looking at the work they were doing, and I really connected with Miami. And Miami now is different; um, their program is totally not what it was when when I was there. Um, but I had gone to like Illinois Institute of Technology, um, some local colleges, um, you know, Clemson, and and so forth. And just seeing the work that they were doing, and I didn't, I didn't connect with it. You know, they were doing these towers, or there was this, there, there were these projects like this one in Illinois, Illinois Institute of Technology, which was to, to build a concrete seat that would cantilever off of the railing uh, on one of the architecture buildings. And, and I was like, I don't really get this. Hmm. Um, and I went to Miami, and they were building. They, they had models of, of of houses of different types and townhomes and, you know, small apartment buildings. And they were really talking about architecture and architecture of place in the city. And that really resonated. And so I kind of stumbled into it, you know, and, and stumbled into, uh, to, in, in the DPZ from there. And so there's only looking back later on, on Detroit that, that you really start to get that connection and, and understanding and, um, and, and and really getting into the history of you know the suburban the flight to the suburbs and you know how all that was uh, was financed um, and and pushed by uh, by by the government and then you know th- then you get uh, more recent books like the color of law that really helps you uh, get connected with the bigger picture of what was what was going on and 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 how not only was there the push outward but there was the sort of uh, the not, it's not even dis, disinvestment. It's it's sort of like negative investment. It's taking away investment from yeah. from the core cities, and you know, so so it helps to get a better you know perspective on on the place that I never would have had that perspective or understanding you know growing up there. 
So, I, you know, I think it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, experience allows you to to look back or revisit and 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 better understand, right? Yeah. And you've had a chance to go back and do some of the work uh, in, in your area, part of the state, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's been interesting working in, in, in Michigan. Well, my parents will complain that like, as soon as they, as, as soon as they were getting ready to move out to Portland, you know, to, to, to be here with, the, with me and my daughter, uh, I started doing a bunch of work in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, what, what's, what's up with that? Um, you know, I haven't done work in, in Detroit, Detroit. We've gone after some, some jobs. There was, there was an, a misunderstanding that the, that the city had with what a pink zone is. Um, so they had started to do the pink zone process and, and the pink zone was really about, uh, you know, removing the red tape and, and making it easier for people to, uh, to improve their neighborhoods, um, on their own, uh, for, for locals to develop, um, on their own, um, to set up structures to support them. Uh, but they had sort of interpreted it as, uh, here's the place that we're going to focus and, and make sure that what comes out of it is, is excellent. And that was really, you know, so they, they were adding barriers instead of removing barriers. So that was oh, yeah. a little bit of a, a, a disappointment there, but uh, we have been able to work with the Municipal League uh, through CNU on um, sort of statewide recommendations uh, in terms of uh, changing local codes to help help sort of downtowns and main streets around the state. Uh, luckily, the, the state of Michigan, uh, the Economic Development Corporation, um, uh, specifically and, and the Municipal League, uh, years ago, had recognized that uh, good investments were investments in their uh, their historic downtowns and their historic main streets, and not in the suburbs. And so they've sort of flipped everything around and said, "Well, we're not going to invest in uh, in in the in, in sprawl in the suburban areas because we know the return on investment um, doesn't pencil." And so what we're going to do instead is is really encourage uh, a focus on on downtowns and main streets, invest there, um, and so. Uh, we, we came to to both uh, organizations uh, where they asked CNU um, to work through this project for code reform idea that that we had, uh, which is essentially that um, you know zoning codes are such a problem in in most places they're they're a barrier towards the the type of investment that people want to see in their community, uh, but reform is just so slow because it can be a lot. I mean, to, to rewrite entire zoning code is like a gargantuan effort. And the idea was, you know, if there's 20,000, you know, small municipalities across the country, like let's, let's target that and help them figure out how to improve incrementally. Um, and so this had started with the project for, for lean urbanism uh, that sort of came out of, out of, uh, out of DPZ and, and the Center for Applied Transect Studies, and we uh, we set up this this framework for the Lean Code Tool, which said, you know, places only have so much uh, staff or political capacity. So, like, let's say parking. Parking is like a huge problem, right? Because the parking requirements are ridiculous, and they don't really come from anywhere. Uh, so they're they're always too high. Parking requirements are a political issue. I mean, like they're totally a political issue. They, they're not a, a, a practical issue. Uh, and and so if you're going to approach parking reform, the best thing you could do is just to get rid of parking requirements at all and just let the let the the developers figure it out, let the market figure it out. Just just don't 
just don't do it. But you need a lot of political capacity uh, to do that, right? You need a lot of a lot of political support uh, and 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 capital. If you don't have that, what are the other steps that you could take? You know, what's the smallest thing that you could do? You know, which would be to say reduce standards in this area in 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 say your your downtown area, right? Because that's usually the easiest to do or in, in a limited area. And so we set up a, you know different declensions of of how you might approach change because it's not one size fits all. Uh, and so we we ended up using that as as a bit of a framework in Michigan because we we began meeting with uh, different municipalities and the reality is most places are small you know just like in in Oklahoma right most places are small and they don't have capacity there's maybe one if you have any staff they're probably wearing like five hats and they they just don't have the time to deal with uh, changing codes or, or even absorbing how to manage a change code or, or the, the sort of, uh, you know, the development environment, understanding what that means. Um, and so we, we approached that uh, with them to, to focus on those uh, downtowns and main streets. And so, um, you know, in, in, in the end, looking back, I recognize how many great towns uh, and great small main streets, uh, great in-town neighborhoods there are uh, across the state of Michigan, and you know D Detroit's a, a sort of a, a big. It's, it's sort of the it's it's the big elephant in the room. But there's just so much um, elsewhere, and what you have is, is is sort of Metro Detroit, which is super super sprawly, um, but it has like a few gems uh, along the way, um, and it has a lot in 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 the core of of the city of Detroit. And if we can find ways to to focus on on those places that are good and, and help them out, then that starts to sort of change the the Metro Detroit uh, landscape. But the state has has so many other wonderful places, and so a lot of it's been been enabling um, enabling that. So in in terms of of, of Metro Detroit, though, um, I have like recently we're just about to finish. Uh, their master plan, which is a comprehensive plan in in Michigan, S similar to, to to Arkansas, they don't necessarily have to have a lot of stuff in there, um, but it's it's, it's re re rewarding. It was working in, in in Birmingham, which is it's an affluent community, um, but my mom grew up there, so it's it was kind of kind of nice to to be able to work on that and and help them uh, help them sort of improve over the next twenty years. And and now we're looking at some uh, adjacent communities to try to help that out. Um, and as part of that, did a, a little regional study to identify all the all the main streets uh, and, and and towns that are in this the sort of suburban uh, diaspora of Metro Detroit uh, to figure out where are great opportunities um, uh, to to really rebuild uh, walkable places. And and there's there's quite a lot. So yeah. you know, ho hopefully there's a way to to sort of push for those places to to improve. But they're they're they're, they're doing that now. And the the wonderful thing is that. Um, you know, not not everybody, but there's there's certainly more consciousness about uh, about walkable places these days, and and it's it's becoming easier. You know, you work in several different municipalities all across the country, as you've already mentioned. You cert notice certain trends in certain areas that are more characteristic of certain municipalities. Is there certain uh, maybe so in the south they they tend to do more of this. Or, more regionally, I guess. Is there 
something you've noticed and experienced and I'd be interested to touch on on that from a from a broad perspective. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, there's like, hmm, how do I how do I categorize all those things? <laughs> um, you know, so, some of, some of it's obviously you know coming from an architectural background. You know, some some of it's the the regional architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so clearly we try to pick up on that first, and that's that's beginning with uh, looking at precedents. You know, re- regional precedents, looking at the history of a place. You know, seeing seeing what it what it once was, what it you know what it could be with uh, with those those roots, and so that that's clearly different um, depending upon where you are in the country. Um, in in terms of of say the municipality, though, um, well, I I will say there there are some places where you may have codes and you may have comprehensive plans, but they don't really matter so much, <laughs> you know, and so. That's 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 kind of interesting. My my early experiences, you know, when I didn't know anything about comprehensive plans, were, was was working a lot in um, in like Alabama, Mississippi, uh, and Louisiana, and so forth, where it wasn't really so important what was in the comprehensive plan, so long as what you were doing, you know, you could garner support from you know from from residents and so forth. But then you go to to other places where it's 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 very important to to work with a comprehensive plan, so it's like you know some some people stick to the book and, and some people are a little bit more loose, um, but you know like the, the the other the other thing obviously is is going to be um, you know politics and you know is what we're doing political no, right? You you just have to approach things differently if you're if you're in a place that is more conservative or more liberal, um, but it it tends to be. You know, we're doing the same thing. It's it's just packaged in in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a different in a different way. You know, it's 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 inherently apolitical, but that that does affect your approach to uh, to to some of the the talking points and and, and so forth in in different places. Um, you know, the 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 biggest pain in everybody's butt is is uh, Department of Transportation, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, they're 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 still they're still, you know, by far, uh, the the ones in 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 the way of of doing good work. Um, you tend to see, you know, these days, you know, okay, so this has changed over the years. So it used to be that we'd have to we'd, we'd go to a place and we'd have to we'd have to really argue to to even get a gross density of like six units to the acre, you know, which is low, right? But they the the books were like one half unit to the acre, and and we we would have to sort of argue uh, for that. But the argument was, look, you want to preserve your character. You want to not have all of your open space taken away, all of your farmland developed. So let's let's draw what it would look like to let's let's say we were doing a project for a thousand households you know everything we do is mixed use so there's there's other uses in there and everything but like let's say it's a you know a neighborhood for a thousand households well let's draw how much land a thousand households would take at a half acre lots you know versus say the density that that we wanted to to um to do and so that that used to be the way that we had had to do things it's not so much the case anymore um because you know building say a, a neighborhood that includes uh a, a wide variety of, of unit types from big big single family homes to small ones to townhouses to small apartments um, that's much more accepted these days 
And so we don't have to make that argument uh, so much anymore. So that's great. Um, now we're moving, and we don't have to make the argument about connected street grids. Uh, we don't have to make the argument about alleys. That used to be something that uh, that the big builders were always a total pain about, you know. But but now you you go just about anywhere, and and even even the big builders are doing alleys. They may not be doing a great job of it, but they're they're doing alleys. Um, and and then it gets into the the sort of further further details of. Uh, transportation and and engineering, which is just sort of as we're building more places, it's more and more of a problem. Like these utility easements in front yards are just such a disaster. You know, like do you do you, do you want to be able to have like a fence in the front or or build a townhouse close to the sidewalk? Does that well, sound familiar, you know, Mark? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. remember that discussion we just had <laughs> yeah. last week? Yeah. 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 So like that's that's a problem everywhere. Like we're pulling our hair out in, in Colorado right now in, in like a very progressive place like Fort Collins. And be like we've gotten we've gotten them on board to allow us to get rid of these utility easements to to put stuff in, in alleys. We're we're routing it all. It's like very complicated. And 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 yet still, there's like, well, we need to check back with the utilities on this, and <laughs> and you know, we we want to build a place that people like really love, <laughs> and right. and we can show it to you, and we've done it in plenty of places, but uh, you know, well, we, we we don't want these utilities to be in the public right of way. Well, you know, like historically, that's where they've been, always. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it's it's sort of it's sort of like mail service. Like you can't have mail service to individual homes anymore. You have to have you know these these mail these gang mailboxes and and everything but you know on on the transportation side it's you know just pushing to have roads that are safe for people to to to, to walk along for kids to bike on you know um that's that's a tough argument now luckily luckily florida of all places is is starting to get out ahead on that they've done a lot of work in the last um in the last say five ten years to change that mentality internally in, in part because they were clearly the most dangerous state in the country and that gave them some good impetus to, to turn things around uh and 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 now when when i'm working other places they're an example where i can say well the entire state of florida is saying it's okay for me to have a, a narrow street that's designed that has a design speed of 20 miles an hour maybe 15 even uh, if we're talking in, in in our main street area or, or downtown, and and all the things that go along with that, you know how you have to curve roads, the sides of lanes, like all that sort of stuff. I'm like if they're if they're statewide saying that's okay, you know there has to be something to to change here. And I think we're on the brink of of this sort of context based transportation standards finding mm -hmm. their way into you know into Ashto and in, into some of the other like sort of uh you know ITE and and other organizations that that are behind it. And so I'd like to I'd like change to talk more is coming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do want to get more into the transportation side of it because I think that's interesting here in a second. But you, you hit on something just a second ago that I thought was really unique because you DPZ in, in your work, you've you you're obviously being hired by communities that recognize that, that the type of work that you do um, is meaningful, it's purposeful, it it creates change, I think positive change. I'd really be interested in understanding how you feel about 
um, a unique place that has character like Miami or Portland or, you know, Charleston or, um, or frankly, Houston, um, someplace that has kind of its own character. And, and it, it appears to me that like you were describing in Detroit, that the, the low hanging fruit of the places that need the most change and need the most, you know, they need the most work to be done in order to kind of bring them up into creating meaningful places. Um, it seems like the zoning DNA and the way that zoning started was really um, obviously it's, it's, it's a nationally applied kind of standard because of case law, but it seems like the places that have the most character don't really need traditional Euclidean zoning, but they, they can use the character that they already have and the history they have to draw on that example. But it's the communities that have kind of weaker standards or less character maybe that are struggling with the, the intersection of this kind of national zoning process and structure with their own kind of unique development patterns. And I think largely we can say that we're not getting the kind of you know, quality environments that, that we want largely in our communities um, because the way that zoning says you have to, you have to design certain things and, and be a part of that. So tell me a little bit about how you see those communities that need the most change, how they could benefit from, yeah, rewriting their codes with you know, the, the lean codes and the form-based codes and the things you've already talked about. Well, I wonder if the, are the communities you, you mean like places that are sort of built on that structure that that the sort of zoning of the last 50 years has has given us or the yeah. FHWA standards where they said, here's how you do a subdivision, yeah. which, which actually, if you, I traced it for, for my thesis through um, through various documents, the, uh, the ULI community builders handbooks over the years um, were sort of exemplifying the, you know, what was kind of the cachet at the time with, with building uh, suburban neighborhoods and you you find sort of everything in there, and then that went on to the United Nations. Uh, also had had documents in the '70s that yeah. um, that was sort of pushing that um, that vision of sort of American sprawl to to the U.S. Now, of course, you know UN's going you know flip, flipping that, and and the World Army Campaign is, is is changing changing things. But you know, obviously, aside, so um, you know places you really have to wonder what people want to see in their in their community uh, most places already have a, uh, a a traditional uh part of the municipality a traditional downtown um maybe a neighborhood next to it and usually the the issue is what do we do with these large commercial corridors that um you know are fast big roads they're at the edge of the neighborhoods uh you know typically you can't really do all that much in those neighborhoods at least not yet you know that that might be something that we can get to uh down the line but there's just so so many of these 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 corridors that that don't work the the, the strip strip malls are um you know half of them are unleased um because we yeah. just don't have i mean we're way over retailed and and so what else do you do with that space and and we also have a you know housing crisis which we've had had since we stopped uh, producing housing in 2008, and you know there's there's great opportunities there for trying to to, to sort of break that up into nodes that can act as uh, as as sort of centers of community activity. They don't have to be full on main streets, but you know like where's 
whereas your like ice cream parlor or coffee shop or, or, or whatever, um, or an opportunity for business incubation. Um, but there's small pieces of that that you can retain and then sort of rebuild the, the strips in between um, with housing. Now, it really depends on what, this is where your transportation comes in, right? It depends what you can do with, with the street. Um, and so actually we, we wrote for Michigan again, uh, a, a second document in the project for code reform, which was focused on uh, suburban corridors, uh, commercial strips, uh, business parks and malls, you know, in, in terms of how, how you would go about uh, changing those from a zoning perspective. Um, in, in most places, that's what you can do because uh, most communities are not willing to change their single family neighborhoods. Now, again, that might change into the future. Um, and it's it's sort of changing in, in a way with some some top-down policy in, in certain states like here in, in, in California and you know Minneapolis is doing this too, uh, which are are starting to outlaw you know single family zones uh, altogether. I mean, that's gonna be a, a big push in the culture wars. You know, I don't think that's gonna go lightly. Um, <laughs> however, however, I can say like uh, I have unlimited density on my property right now. And, you know, basically anywhere here you can build a fourplex, but it's not like, you know, it's not happening. <laughs> you know, everybody's everybody's not redeveloping a, right. a, you know, a fourplex. And and I think that's something that's really missed out in the conversation is, you know, what is the the sort of time scale of change? Um, yeah. So, so okay. So what, what can communities do? There's There's a lot of places that can focus on on bolstering their their historic main streets and and neighborhoods and then fixing their corridors. Now there's places that don't have a center. Well, you have a lot of opportunities to to create a center. Now, why would you create a center? Um, there's there's uh, there's a lot of reasons, but um, mainly it's it's that you know strip malls and shopping centers themselves don't uh, garnish the type of 24-hour activity that you need to really support the businesses. Right, they are reliant upon everybody having extra time to 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 drive there or having a need to go to a destination, um, and then those are are often single destination trips, so uh, they're really inefficient in terms of of transportation and and parking. Um, but if you have a place that's mixing housing and and jobs and and retail and services, you know now it becomes active. The businesses have an opportunity to prosper more. Uh, and as you're visiting it, well, you're probably going to find more stuff, even if you're not living there, right? So it does it does benefit everybody in the community. And maybe you don't have to drive to the next town mm -hmm. to, to 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 get something that you needed, or to to visit a service, or you know, or whatever whatever it is that you're you're going to, or um, uh, also uh, to have meaningful civic spaces. You know, that's that's what we're missing. I mean, in in almost all of America is meaningful civic spaces we have regional parks that you know have ball fields and soccer fields and and so forth but you know everybody's got to drive there um you know which is fine for some of those things like driving to a tournament that's normal right but say having having access to to like a great square or or, or plaza that has activity in it that has music at night you know things that that really enliven civic life that that lets you interact with with other people. Um, that's super super rare. Um, but when you do have these big sites like like malls that have died, 
or these big power centers. You know, power centers are like the the really big big boxes with a lot of inline and mm -hmm. inline shops. You know, like those that have declined. That's a lot of landmass. But I mean, you can build yourselves, you know, a center for the community. It doesn't have to be skyscrapers, you know, but you can build a place of 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 activity, and that's just as much. I mean, it's it's subdivision and zoning standards in coordination, but it's but it's really like the community vision. You know, that's that's the that's the big question there when you're working from the community side, is what do you want to see, uh, you know, your place become in the future um and we know on the other side of it for for the municipality uh it, it pencils much better to redevelop those and and uh mixed use higher higher intensity uh fashion whether you get your revenue from uh sales tax or if you get your revenue from property tax or a combination of both depending upon where you are yeah. I, in exploring the complexities in the built environment and the kind of differences between the traditional downtown as you were mentioning and kind of the suburban strip malls one of the reasons that I think that there, there's been a, a successful rise in online shopping and the shedding of retail space is because that we're we're not experiencing life at two miles an hour anymore when we're walking downtown and exploring a shop happening upon something that we may like. And once we get in our car, to your point of that single destination trips are such a burden and such a hassle that I think we've passed that threshold as a society where we no longer enjoy shopping. It's a burden to go. And so the opportunity to have something delivered to our door at a, you know minimal or, or you know potentially high cost to society is we've, we've eroded what was that urban experience. And, and I feel like there's gonna be a greater distinction between places that have already instilled that value and created those places of, of real deep meaning and the places that you know, the strip malls are gonna continue to fail and fall apart. And no one's gonna, you know, be you're gonna be really sad, you know, to see them go away because it's just another ugly strip mall. And I think though that so much of our cities are built in that form, that it's really gonna be a struggle in the future to try and regain, you know, regain that kind of economic foothold and claw back into the more personal retail experiences. And and ultimately, I think you've come down to the transportation and the revenue sides of it are those key components. You can have great architecture all day long and you have, you know, really fancy, you know, string lights and, you know, patio furniture and things like that. But if getting there is a hassle and and it's expensive to maintain those properties, you know, the, the restaurants have to raise prices and becomes more and more unaffordable. But, um, I, you know, that's that's where that's where like lifestyle centers don't don't really work lifestyle center is right, right the the mall turned outside but without any housing right yeah you know because you don't you don't have the the critical mass but you, you did bring something up there which is important which is the experience of of the downtown environment or yeah. or even even a, a well uh a well done new uh new center you know redevelopment of of a mall or strip mall that's just done well you know it's people have have spoken quite a lot over the last you know few years about experiential retail right and and that's 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 what was competing with uh with with delivery and 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 these these uh these larger uh larger box sort of um stores that you can't compete with on price you you have to compete with on, on experience and it's really the, the the urban experience is also uh part of that competition you know it's yeah. having all those things together having those uh those open spaces being able to to go and not necessarily 
go to a place because you have a particular destination, but because you want to be in that space. Yeah. And you know, maybe and and you have places that you're allowed to hang out <laughs> and don't get harassed. Yeah. Um and and you can choose to 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 visit uh, a store or a restaurant or 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 whatnot. Um or you can choose not to. But you're in that space and you enliven that space. And you know, that's an important experience that you're right, that we've that we've lost and and we lost in a lot of you know, a lot of towns that had their uh their eventually their their Sears or their Montgomery Wards or or whatever that was there near the main street or or town square and then then that left and then the malls went on the outside and and then that place declined. But you know, we've we've found in doing work for those uh those towns uh and and also cities like like Providence whose downtown was dead when when we were working there in the nineties. Um it was it was really about finding ways to rebuild the experience of of being in that space, the excitement of being in that space, and then they were able to to capitalize on that experience to sort of reinvigorate um, their uh, not only their their commercial properties there, but also the housing um, around them. Now, of course, there's there's all the all those sorts of issues that then then came secondarily, which is well now housing is expensive and and you know there there is a there is a supply and, and demand piece of this, which is not just, you know, is there enough housing supply to meet demand, but is there enough supply of of places that are are walkable and pleasant and comfortable and, uh, you know, you, you don't feel like you're going to get run over crossing the street, um, and you can let your, your 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 kids have a little bit of autonomy. You know, there's not a supply of those places. You know, there's a serious lack of supply of those those places, and so, you know, as soon as as soon as we, you know, help one to reemerge or make a new one, you know, there's just such a demand for it um, because it's just not what it's not what even in new construction it's not what people are building. Yeah. You know, as as much as as much as we'd like to see to as much as we'd like to be winning the battle against against you know, sprawl, which is sort of the, the battle that, that we fight, um, you know, we're still not, uh, you know, like there was a project in, in, in California that we were working on, you know, 1500 units, you know, it, it was a, a redevelopment of, of a golf course, uh, you know, surrounded by housing, the neighbors were totally down with it. They're like, yes, redevelop that golf course, give us, give us a main street and housing and, and, mm. and whatnot. That's great. Um, but you know the codes weren't set up for it, and California has all these, all these statewide goals and standards that want us to be doing what we were doing, um, but they're not set up to really enable it. So you know, just the headache to try to get 1,500 units done in a in a format that that met all the goals of what was wanted was impossible. Yet at the same time, 10,000 units of sprawl, you know, no problem. Like we're just mm-hmm. going to build that. Right. I, I want to bring this back a little bit back to transportation because uh, I'm a <laughs> I'm a civil engineer by trade, so it's it's something that piques my interest uh, from a just a purely this is what we had talked about in school, right? And you know we've been all trained on the Green Book, which you've referenced Ashto. So the Green Book is still in force, but luckily 
there's some municipalities that have been willing to confront kind of some of those requirements uh, provided is how does that discussion for these safer streets and getting away from some of those early requirements, what does that conversation look like um, when you begin talking to cities about trying to make the, the spaces more uh, pedestrian friendly and, and safer streets, essentially? What does that look like? It depends where you are. <laughs> so, well, because some, some places are already sort of already set up for that or are okay with it or or are really pushing for uh for pedestrian and, and bike safety and 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 not towards uh, automobiles so you know like so for example you know fort collins again like they're they're progressive on on that on that side of things and so they're in in a private development you know we're we're really working on on pushing the envelope in terms of slowing speeds um, and and being very uh, very bike forward and pedestrian forward, we're working with with a, a group out of the Netherlands to to really push for like extra bike uh, bike first design and um, and they're supportive and so that's that's great. Uh, but but also because they have uh, you know a council that is is really about that pushing for that and and staff is all behind it, right? So working in a place like that, it's it's easy, it's wonderful. In, in a lot of other places, it, it so it depends. And, and, and here it's, it's also difficult because I work on the development side of it and on the municipal side of it. <laughs> working, working on the, on the development side of it. So like, you know, that, that example is that, you know, we're working on, on, a, on a big development. Um, I can go to other places where we're working on, on big developments. And basically our strategy for making places safe in those environments was that most places just don't care that much about the local roads. And so we just sort of step back from the arterials and collectors and we ensure that all of our stuff is local world. Mm. And we try to make that interface as safe as we can. But as soon as you come into a, a development, then then we, you know, narrow things down. We have really, really low design speeds. And that's usually achieved by um, by working with one of a handful of of uh, civil and, and traffic engineers that we work with, who who are really progressive, who want to push for for safety, and and they can talk engineer to engineer, and and that that usually gets us uh, pretty far in in those cases. Now, in, in 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 other places where we're working with the municipality, it's a it's a mixed bag, right? And 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 sometimes you know, it it comes down to what what sort of support you have from uh, from city council on making change, right? And and how they're going to direct uh, the department to be more or less uh, progressive in accepting those changes. Um, you know, in some cases, it's 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 like, well, hey, let's let's try something, let's let's experiment here and and see how it goes. Now it's gotten it's gotten a lot easier. So it used to be it used to be hard, but I can, I can tell you every single there's not a project that I have ever worked on. That doesn't have some component of redesigning streets, mm -hmm. because I mean it's it's core. You know, we like to look at it as as our as our sort of civic space number one of of the U.S. And most of them are just too large, too fast, dangerous. Um, so there's always a component of redesigning streets, and it's just seeing how far you can you can push it. Like, I know that 
I know that I want to get down to to ten foot travel lanes, like ideally nine foot if I'm you know in, in a neighborhood. I want to get down to seven foot parking lanes. I want to include the 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 gutter pan in the parking lane dimension. You know, like there's there's all this there's all the strategies that that you have, and it's sort of like, all right, let's let's push this. Let's see how it goes. Let's push that. Let's let's yeah. let's see how it, let's see how it goes. Um, but the the sort of one off, like here, let's try it on this street. And if it goes well, then we can build it uh, into a system. Is 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 usually the most successful way. And but you know, the the whole like the the, the green book makes it hard. State DOTs make it hard. But the proliferation of of NACTO, the you know National Association of City Transportation Officials, and 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 what they've been um, advocating for has really, really, really helped. You know, that's that's made a, a big difference in in the last five years. You know, because they're pushing for all these same uh, changes, saying like, no, it's actually safer. This is a place for pedestrians and 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 cyclists and 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 cars as well, but not not cars, cyclists, pedestrian or cars gap cyclists pedestrian. <laughs> Right. But, but more so, you know, the, the, the modes to, together. And, you know, I think there's also a lot of change going on in terms of considering um, how fast different roadway users are moving and, mm -hmm. and how, how that allows you to change the way that they interact in the street. Like if a bike's moving at 15 miles an hour and a car is moving at 20, like that's a viable interface. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, you can work together, you can share spaces and and, and so forth. But if, if the, the car is going like 45 and I mean that like I can go over 15, but most people aren't going to bike over, over 15, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that doesn't work out. Right. So I think, I think that's the conversation is changing, mm -hmm. but you know, we need, we, we need Ashto to come along and we need, and which, which I think is happening. Right. And, and the, the manual of on uniform traffic control devices like that, that rewrite is happening. Mm -hmm. That that can hopefully be uh, be helpful. I mean, what would be dangerous is is if there's an assumption. It's, it's sort of like zoning, and so this kind of gives us the zoning, um, where where a, a a good friend of mine uh, who's a zoning attorney had said the the problem is that so many people look at uh, at zoning as a final condition. Like you, you write a code, and this is the final condition. But but zoning is something that changes. It changes over time. Places evolve. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, I, I'd hope that the 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 sort of re the revisions to Mukti and and the revisions that will happen to the Green Book are 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 seen as as opening up the system to incremental improvements. Because I'm I'm sure the changes that are going to be made are only going to get so far, in in this round, right? Yeah. And and they'll need to evolve further. There's dueling motivations and all the things we've talked about. And on one hand, we want to have uh, you know safe streets. We want to make it walkable. We want to have it you know where it's comfortable to the the quality of places we're describing. But at the same time, we also recognize that there are you know there are highways and there are places that are just pass-throughs, and there's no really there's no real community there um, to speak of. I think a lot of communities have a kind of competitive nature with other adjacent cities. And so if obviously if there's a larger city that has a, a more robust and diverse economy with a, with a, maybe a strong downtown and, and a lot of suburban sprawl, if you look at the, the suburban communities outside of that, maybe smaller ones, 
they, they want the sales tax dollars. They want the growth. They want to be the next thing. And it's easier to open the doors and say, hey, we're not going to put limits on growth. We're not going to try and you know stop this. It's almost like if you say, if you provide any type of guidance or any type of code suggestion or really provide any sort of barrier to just like, hey, it's a wild west, let's, let's go build. Um, you end up having a political scenario where you're finding people who you, you be accused of being anti-growth when in reality, all you want is just a better quality of growth and more thoughtful and more considerate. And very rarely do you get, you know, the transportation engineers and the walkability experts, you know, with aligned values, giving the community the exact same advice saying you need to have a walkable, healthy environment, but you can also have corridors connecting to other places. So if you were to kind of broad brushstroke, make suggestions for communities um, to increase the quality of their environments and, and also spur investment, um, what, from your experience, what places have you seen and what are the things that can be done to, you know, provide safe streets and also quick access to other places, have great built environment, but also have something that's investment worthy that, uh, you know, is going to, going to pencil out. Uh, you know, just read strong towns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. As I was say, <laughs> that, that sounds exactly like the conversation I had with Charles last year. See, you could either be, you know, Kind of like the the McDonald's that gives everything out low cost and and tries to get you know volume, or you could be like the steak restaurant that's uh, maybe maybe you're a little more choosy, but uh, you might get some better investment. But I that's I, I've heard that argument, Mark, too. Uh, even around where I you know in our area, it's uh, pro development versus maybe not anti development, but more selective development uh, uh, oriented staff, city staff and whatnot. And it's interesting to see how those two, you know, kind of develop, co-develop side by side. I, but yeah, go ahead, Matt. It just, it's funny. <laughs> well, I, was, I mean, the, the, the answers are all there with, uh, with, with, with Chuck and strong towns and, and, and what they're, what they're looking at, which is to really understand what the, what the long-term value is of growth and in different formats and you can choose to grow in, in in a format that is that you're sort of already set up for that everybody's been used to um that is highway oriented and so forth but you're going to bankrupt yourself and you know which which you know people haven't seen so far uh and you know I'm I'm not like uh, a doom and gloomer because um, I, I think that everybody underestimates how long it takes for change to occur, either either for uh, either for like the the sort of doom and destruction. They're like, well, it's it's all gonna go to hell in ten years. You're like, uh, no, it's it's gonna take a lot longer than that. They've been or, saying that for or, thirty years. Yeah, exactly. Or or it's or it's gonna it's gonna transform in in, in ten years. You're like, no, it's gonna take longer than that. Well, the, the time essence is really interesting because when you start overlaying the length of life cycle infrastructure and the length of time it takes for right. mortgages to pay out, and then you look at the political life of most of our elected officials and, and understanding that their, their public service time is often less than this in, uh, investment horizon. And so we see a lot of shifting from one type of thing to another type of thing, a lot of waffling back and forth. Architecture and engineering professions, frankly, have not changed dramatically, and, and some would argue that they need to change dramatically. 
um, in, in the next few years. But we have this timeline of things we're left with, uh, this legacy of sprawl and, and frankly, the, the legacy of disinvestment or, or you said it earlier, was it de-investment? Or negative investment in it was like negative areas. investment, yeah. Yeah, in urban yeah like, like how do you how do you how do you say like the fact that we've 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 actively taken away investment? It's like yeah. it's it's not it's not, but, not not just not investing, but it's redirecting it to, to somewhere else, you know. Yeah, or, or the fashion of tearing buildings down that that had incredible value, intrinsic you know value to our communities, but financially they just seemed old. And and places like Portland, I think, kept much of its infrastructure, a lot of that. Um, but you know, you go to other places and they've torn down entire historical portions of their cities to rebuild that at today's cost is just incredibly um, irresponsible. And I think no one during that period of time was thinking about the long-term investment because they're thinking about, you know, progress, the new movements or whatever. I feel personally connected to all of that loss. And every every building that I see or photograph I see of an old building that's been torn down, it's like I take it personally. And I don't know. I don't know how to get over it. I got to like talk to a therapist or something about it because it's just like I feel burdened by all of this. Yeah. And, and so it, uh, back to a question. Well, guess, it, well some ahead. some places, you know, I've I've, I've thought about. Uh, I reconnected to what I was thinking, but um, I have thought about this fact quite quite a bit. And you know, to me, it comes down to some places were. Uh, had a lot of money at the right time, and some places had a lot of money at the wrong time. Yeah, and yeah. and so, I mean, it's it's not perfect here in Portland by by a long stretch, you know. And 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 you know, we may be like bikeable me- mecca. We don't have that many bike lanes, you know. It's it's just that drivers stop for cyclists and they're, they're, <laughs> and, and they're nice. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I think that that a lot of stuff wasn't torn down because the place wasn't wealthy in the 80s and, and 90s when a lot of that was occurring but you know we we do have like entire neighborhoods that were torn down for like you know like they tore out all the all the black neighbors over here for the hospital they tore out the uh, italian neighborhood by by downtown for like this horrible um soulless place that's that's there now um, so it depends. It depends when you are rich or, or poor, which is sort of, mm. sort of, sort of similar to to figuring out which places have traditionally had townhouses in the United States before before the war, before World War II, and those those places that were prosperous um, before World War II and, and large had townhouses, and and after that it was it was lost. I mean, like the townhomes in, in Cincinnati are just amazing, you know, yeah. uh, for, for, for example. Um, but the, the other thing that I was thinking on, on the timescale is, uh, you know, well, okay. We say that, that making a, a bad investment now is going to tank you in the future. Uh, and, and why is that important today more so than, than before? And, you know, one of the biggest indicators is the fact that, uh, that state DOTs are, no longer confident that they are going to get federal funding to maintain their highways, right? Mm. And so you, you can mm. you can actually see uh, across most states uh, conversion towards uh, tolled highways, tolled bridges. You know that's that's happening. You know almost everywhere. Uh, and where it's not happening now, it's going to be happening in the future. Um, and you know that's that's because we've gotten to the point where we don't have the the means to pay for the infrastructure that we have to maintain. And so building new infrastructure that we're not going to be able to maintain down the road in the future 
uh, now it's not going to hit us for for 30 years until we have to start maintaining it. But um, that that is something that was it Joe or Chuck that I, I don't know if if it was Urban Three or, or Strong Towns or maybe they they work together so much. Um, I think I think it was Urban Three who had who had uh, those graphics that say you know, here's the replacement cost of the infrastructure, but then you're going to have to keep replacing it, keep replacing oh, yeah. it, and keep replacing yeah. it, and and that becomes like a, a built-in cost uh, down the road. I mean, there was it was working in in Pontiac, Michigan, um, and we were just sort of looking at all the roads that they had to fix, and talking to the the public works. Uh, director i mean they had this whole thing where the the state put them in receivership and then like liquidated all their departments and their assets i mean it was a total total mess and the the receiver the person in charge of it was corrupt and all this sort of stuff i mean really really sucks for that community um but you know we're we're, we're looking at, at these roads and saying in in the long term would half of these streets be better to be gravel in terms of your your long term uh, maintenance costs associated with it, you know, and and that that may be the case because mm. you know you're not getting into the same replacement costs, potholing, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> that's wild to think about, but uh, that's that's a real conversation that a lot of places are having right now. Is and, and some of these these new towns, it's or not new towns, but post war boom towns. Uh, that kind of come up and, and built like crazy or, or starting to, or maybe not seeing it quite yet, but uh, it, it's starting to become a real conversation. <laughs> Mark and I could probably talk with you for hours and hours, but I know your time is yeah. limited. So maybe there's a, there's an episode two or three or four. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I'll chat but, anytime, you know, <laughs> <laughs> But I wanted to start wrapping it up here and give you an opportunity to tell us where we can find out more about yourself, kind of the mission of DPZ, and uh, what kind of projects you're working on and, and where we can find out more about you. And then and we'll kind of wrap it up here. Oh, sure, sure. Well, um, you know, at DPZ, uh, which we've shifted our name around a bunch of times, but, uh, <laughs> Now, now, now we're into co-design, but but DPZ always always sticks sticks with it. Um, that you can you can find at dpz.com. So, you know, l- luckily, luckily, some of the shortest email addresses in <laughs> yeah. in the world. <laughs> awesome. um, you know, we, we we don't have all of our stuff on there, but um, because we're small, like we're we're only, you know, maybe twenty five people, um, for 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 the amount of work that we do in, in, in a lot of places like we're we're tiny so we don't always have the capacity to keep our website up and and, <laughs> and all that because because we're working on advocacy and, and projects and, and and so forth so you can find out um information there and we we do keep stuff um up to date more up to date on instagram than 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 anything else um uh but a lot of the the, the mission and and background comes from the the charter uh for the new urbanism um which is a dense, it's short, but but a dense document that really sets out the goals that that we espouse. So you can find that at at cnu.org. Um, you know, uh, become a member, uh, join us, check out uh, on the park bench and and public square for for articles. Um, 
and so you know there's some info for from me there but but really check out the the charter because it it sets out these goals for how we should be building um our our, our country really and 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 the world in terms of uh not only how we build places physically but how we preserve uh natural corridors, uh, riparian watersheds, uh, farmlands, and, and how the preservation of these natural areas and, and working lands is uh, goes hand in hand with with development. So if we're if we're developing in, in a means that is that is not uh, efficient with its use of the land, then we're impacting all these other systems and, and that's going to be causing uh, a, a lot of problems down the line. And speaking of down the line, uh, then you can also find more at uh, placeinitiative.org um, in, in terms of, of our uh, work in uh, climate change and, and equity and urbanism. Um, and in particular, the Climate Receiver Places Project that's looking at, um, at climate migration, uh, what places are going to be uh, Sort of better off in 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 the near future in terms of relatively uh, of, of their <laughs> relatively better off yeah every every, every place has problems but where is where is relatively better off but using that as using the the future uh, influx of of population as a motivation uh, for places to sort of get their act together and build regional co coalitions you know get their policies in place. Um, so that as they they grow, they can do so responsibly, and you know we're not destroying all this agricultural land that we absolutely need to sustain our future population. We're not destroying our watersheds that we need for uh, for for clean water. We're not overburdening um, natural environments, um, which we still need for the diversity of other other populations of, of of animals on on the planet. And it's it's very important to do those things together. Um, and and in that uh, in that project, you know, it's I don't know. This is so it's so complicated. All all this all this world of of uh, of preservation, uh, uh, development, um, growth, and 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 where you don't where you don't grow. Um, yeah, we could talk about it for hours. I think I had something yeah. else. If it if it comes to mind in the next in the next couple of minutes, I'll bring it back up. Well, it it is one of those challenges because we we are developer I mean, in many ways. We we support development, we support growth, and at the same time, I think that our professions are finally recon reconciling the fact that we've maybe grown too much in the wrong way, and we have to pull back and we have to have some natural reckoning um, between what we can do and get paid to do versus what's the best thing we can do for society as a whole, and, and that conflict I think is is on the tips of everybody's tongue and the conversations we're having, but there's still that need for progress. We still have greenfield developments. We still, we are still going to grow as a society. We've just got to do it smarter. Yeah. Well, you know, we, I, I did some research on this oh, and then I thought about the other thing is, <laughs> so I did some, some, some research on this, uh, just cause I've been interested and, uh, you know, in North America, we grow by about the size of Los Angeles every year. There's, so there's a new Los Angeles every year in terms of population. Now, what we've been doing for the longest time is just sort of aggregating sprawl like a cancer on our existing places. And so, you know, where where we could be um, uh, building in a responsible manner, we're like we're we're not. But that's that's a lot of people. I mean, it's it's actually almost uh, Chicago every year, right? It's just nuts wow. if you think about it from 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 that standpoint. 
Uh, and so we we really need to to be thinking about this uh, regionally and 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 to be responsible about it. Now, the the other thing that we didn't touch on, and maybe we can touch on um, at some time. And, and actually, I I could use talking to some people that know more about this because here's something I don't know enough about, um, but I see it as a problem. Uh, and that's uh, I've studied with a colleague of mine uh, how representative different uh, local governments are in terms of how many people per representative, right? And uh, what you tend to find, which is just baffling, is like every place has seven representatives. It's nuts, no matter what size they are. Right. I mean, some places are, are growing that. Um, uh, apparently, there was direct democracy in in New York uh, City some you know decades and decades or 100 years ago or, or whatever, and they were up to 250 representatives, and that's not functional, right? But um, What's also not functional is uh, is Los Angeles has 250,000 people per representative, and Portland is 150,000 people per per representative, right? That just doesn't that doesn't work, right? And you know, as we're especially as we're dealing with community equity and uh, and and issues of of representation more broadly, you know that it really becomes it it's really a local issue. And, and you know, honestly, like as much as we like to talk about you know national issues and and, and politics, we just people really need to focus on on local issues, um, and we really need to start focusing on this system of local representation because it's broken. Um, but it's not beyond reproach; it can be fixed. So, um, you know, I, I think that's a conversation that I that I'd love to have with some some more people. And and you know, I don't know enough, but I I I'm thinking about the levers of of change uh, that are out there as opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Um, yeah that's uh that's a whole nother maybe series <laughs> I, don't know yeah, yeah. I think that's more than one episode right there <laughs> yeah, yeah go- governance is always a challenge especially when you have lay people who are not trained in leadership um and seeking positions for one motivation or another yeah that that's it's a complex issue and, and i think that the the concept of forming a more perfect union is always a test. I think it's always a challenge to find the right people and the right leadership. And in our professions, we rely on standards, you know, codes and zoning and things as a backstop for that. So in, in our rewriting those codes and rewriting those standards, we're also reshaping how we approach uh, this profession. And especially in the next few years, that's going to be uh, a, a very critical issue that we're going to have to deal with. So Well, Matt Lambert, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really excited uh, about having this conversation and uh, we will, uh, we'll be following this up soon. I think there's plenty (laughs) to talk about and plenty that we have going on. So thank you for your time. Sounds great. It's great, great to be here. And, you know, when, when, whenever we can make the time work, you know, this, this, this stuff is what we all do and and love and could talk endlessly about. So enjoy Portland. Have a great afternoon.